Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and CEO at Fivespeak, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a renowned thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking and finance and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you go all in on? Tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of If I Ran the Bank. I'm your host, Clayton Weir, and I'm super excited about today's guest. So uh, full disclosure, uh, Joe is a, a, an investor in Fivespan, so I'm going to probably take it pretty easy on the softball questions with him today. But um, really excited to have Joe. He's a multi-time kind of fintech entrepreneur, uh, more recently a, a pretty dedicated fintech-specific VC across a few different uh, vehicles. And for whatever reason, also owns a bank, um, which uh, is the uh, probably the first time we've had a, a, a such a direct uh, bank uh, runner on the show, as opposed to it being hypothetical. So uh, thanks for joining, Joe. Always great to hang. Is there anything in that intro that you want to clean up or or double click on? No, I think it's good. I mean, you know, just by background, serial fintech entrepreneur, bootstrap, you know, started in the early 90s on the internet, you know, building building applications before kind of SaaS was a word or before the cloud. And that's what we were doing is building private applications on the cloud. And so kind of been very fortunate to see a lot of the rails coalesce over the last 30 years. And it just kind of built the capstone of a business in fintech. And, and as you know, joined, started on the investment side in 2016 from an operator to a VC, um, operator led VC growth, early stage, uh, was one of the first institutional investors in Fivespan on the board. Love what you guys are doing. Um, invest, pretty broad thesis, kind of have four verticals that we really like, kind of office of the CFO, you know, embedded payments, everything around the RP, capital markets, both private and public, bank tech, which is now all kind of lending with all other, and uh, payments. So kind of have, you know, four pillars that we invest in across multiple vehicles and um, got about 40 companies now. So it's been 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 really a wild ride in the last six years, and there's been a lot of change. And so, like, how would you characterize that change? Like, from the you know, if we go back to the kind of height of uh, fintech in 2015, and the kind of you know, direct consumer and and disrupt you know the banks and make them blockbuster moment to now, like, what's what are the biggest things that you do you think are different? Well, I think there's two. I, I would say there's there's two very large currents in the industry that, that have just created such mass adoption and mass investment. I think one is the large FIs, financial institutions, for the most part, have laid down their weapons and really gone to the outside market for investment. Uh, they just can't invest and build internally software at the pace of the change that's demanded. They can't they can't. Uh, uh, so they're really looking at the outside markets. You know, the the whole concept of building big, huge enterprise software inside the walls of an FI are, you know, pretty much done. You know, now we've got interconnected software with API and microservices where we can really interconnect lots of smaller applications to be much more nimble, much more current and move at a pace that's that's just insane. 
Um, I, I think that's that's one large current. The other would be, you know, the pace of digitization. I mean, the pandemic really educated us. Not not that all this software wasn't going to get adopted, Clayton. I mean, at some point, but it just accelerated adoption, it, especially in financial services. I mean, it just really accelerated a lot of digitat native digital processes pulled it forward, but it also exposed how many analog processes are still in the stack and how we need to attack them. Because there was a lot of middle and back office processes that <laughs> we just couldn't get to that weren't weren't set up for remote access or remote workflow. They were all they all had remote access. It just wasn't native workflow. Does that make sense? It's kind of two currents. And would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And so on that note, I think something that's interesting, I'm really curious your thoughts on, I don't know, I have an opinion. So, so especially around, you know, off CFO is something I'm really familiar with. And so if that's for people that are listening, aren't thinking about that, I would describe that as this suite of operational tools within the, you know, the core financial operations of a business, right, that are rapidly digitizing, and I think, doing stuff that you would have never thought via software. There's so many names, right? And we've seen some big public companies, you know, in, in that space now and on top of just ERP and, and historical, but like where what percentage of like where are we in that game? You know, I have one metric that we've tried. I think we're up to eleven percent of ERPs are natively cloud based. That's crazy. Crazy low. <laughs> think about that. Cloud accounting. Now now, it'll be a hundred percent within the next decade, you know, on-prem software, on-prem support, like the big companies that build and maintain and support the software are not going to support it. I mean, and people are just not going to be on-prem. So if you, if you think about native adoption and, and, and people want to move to the cloud, it just, that tells you how big these operations are. You know, they have so many nested processes around the ERP. Some of them now they have tools that they can go adapt and embed and adopt. But in the old school, they had hidden factories that are all built around this, this desktop software. And they, they've got all of these, these applications that are attached and, and, and integrated that it's not as easy and as simple as we may think to just move our EP, ERP to the cloud. And, and I think the crawler is once the, if the ERP is kind of the center of your universe, in that world, once it's in the cloud, all of the cascading, like all of the, opens up your opportunity for all the applications around it too. So these other- Oh yeah, they can all talk to each other natively. Like not that a cloud-based application can't connect to a desktop ERP, but then you don't get the benefit of the cloud. You don't get the leverage. Uh, you're getting a point solution. You're not getting, a, uh, you're, you're not getting the cumulative effect of the benefit. What do you think are the top, I mean, somebody once said, and I think it's probably a good way to think about it, that there's, you know, there's all kinds of things that would have been a department in a company that now are just a piece of software that you buy. And so even if you think about like 50 years ago, right, companies running their own, like realtor running its own credit card, you know, program, there would have been 50 people or 100 people, you know, sorting out the balances and emailing statements and it just becomes software, right? Like, what, what do you think those are today, right? Those like, departments within the broader finance operational organization that just won't exist five and 10 years from now? Look, the really, really, really large corporations that are processing 50,000 invoices a month are still going to have 
core infrastructure departments, but they're going to be overseeing software. (laughs) You know, think of an AP clerk or an AP function. You know, that used to be something you were trained to do is, is an accounts payable function. If you, if you think of AP automation, I mean, Clayton, it's a, it's a massive industry now. It, (laughs) you know, you, you, there's literally, if you do AP automation, Google search, I mean, hundreds of companies show up and and that used to be something that was 100% manual. I was wondering this the other day, I mean, you think of how big the businesses are of, you know, Bill and, and Avid, you know, some of the public names in that. I, I can't fathom how minuscule their market share probably is in aggregate still. It's crazy. You know, everybody's chasing that because it is so small because there's so many payment gateways that, that, you know, you say Avid and Bill, but then there's a, there's a bunch of, you know, just pure payment companies that are touching. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a good question. It's just, it's it's fascinating because we what we see firsthand is that people still write checks on a lot of this, right? So the addressable market is still kind of payments minus check. Who would have ever thought that use of checks grew 15% in 2021? Now, people are like, you're, you're, that's not true. I said, yeah, it is because there's a huge portion of the market that's just getting to online bill pay. So think about the adoption of online bill pay. Well, when you submit an online bill pay, it's just going and printing a check and shipping it. Like that is a check. So people are like, oh yeah, you know, there's still a market there, which is just fascinating. Yeah. But it's like a, I, I would argue it's like a virtualization of the check, right? Like I don't really experience the check, but no, I, I totally agree. And that would be completely counterintuitive to people that check volume would have grown or that digitization somehow grew check volume. But no, totally agree with all that. So changing gears, I guess kind of the same kind of question on the bank technology side, like, you know, how how far are we into that revolution do do you think? And does that, you know, this, I guess the big news recently was the probably the FinZact acquisition, like, does that, you know, sort of mark, uh, like, how close are we to the cloud being pervasive in that world? I guess the number is probably really similar to the ERP number. Oh, it's, it's much smaller. Like, we, we've we had about, there's about six cloud cores that are all at some point of gestation. Um, none of them, arguably, none of them have more than 15 to 20 customers. I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, it, it is... It is a fascinating. So, so bank tech, bank tech is 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 changing fast as fast as any market I've ever been involved with. Is is just as far as the number of companies, the number of problems, the number of point solutions they're chasing, the mu- the number of deals. Uh, we 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 have a huge practice in bank technology, as you know, and we actually have also have you know almost a hundred banks as JV partners in a network and we're very involved in this space. And um, I think one thing the pandemic accelerated more than anything, maybe five years, five plus years, is digital transformation in a bank. And, And what I mean is native digital interaction with the bank. Did you know that like in the US, 65% of new deposit accounts that are opened today are, are, are opened on an app and people don't even know it's not a bank. It's a neobank. Like they clear it. And yes, it's appropriately KYC and, and AML, the security's there. But like 
you know, when you open up with a native digital experience, the deposits are routed to an existing bank. It's a different bank. Like if you look, if you look below where the deposit's showing up, it's just fascinating to see the millennial engagement and 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 all it is is technology. And there's no reason the banks can't have that same technology. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. That I, I think that's a, I'll maybe say it a different way, but you made me think of of a different thing too, right? And I know a lot of your portfolio companies and and some of that, you know, you talk about your your partner network of banks. I know a lot of that's kind of from big medium sized banks down to some very small banks. Um, and it's interesting, right? Because when I think about like digitization in that segment, it's a little bit of a there's kind of a return to scale game, right? You kind of need your 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 burden on digital spend and investment now is so big that it, it strikes me as the there's some cutoff where it's you just can't be that small of a bank as you could have when it was like you know your two branches and some small town kind of was the core of a really small bank in a digital world that doesn't seem to be like like that's going to be possible anymore. I disagree unless you are a native digital bank. Like you, you asked about our bank. Like, so look, I, I have often wondered and I, and I, and I think we were fortunate to get ahead of it. We, we, we actually did put an investment group to, in, and, you know, full disclosure, I am the chairman of a bank, a very small bank. And, you know, we bought a bank that was in East Tennessee with three branches, tiny little community bank, it was uh, undercapitalized. It wasn't in trouble from a capitalization. It just couldn't grow and it couldn't couldn't raise capital. So we came in and um, preserved what was there, and then brought in a team that's that's incredibly digital. And we are slowly in partnership with the regulators and in full transparency, turning it into a platform and program bank. So, so I think actually, if you have the right team, and that's a big caveat because we, we really do understand it, which is hard. You can't just put a team like this together. You can take a very small bank and use the charter and be in transparency and partnership with the regulators to change the face and, and, and grow and benefit from all of this digital transformation. I mean, it's, it's almost like being a Netflix product manager in the middle of a blockbuster franchise. Totally. And I I think that's what I was actually trying to get at, though, is, I mean, there's two things to to what you've talked about. One is that, you know, it being a platform bank, right? And so there's probably, somebody said that there was 40 or so to be the other day, kind of community or state chart type banks that had really aggressive kind of banking and service programs in the U.S. right now. I don't know if that number is higher. I I would say... I would say there's 40 that say they are, and there's about 10 that have crushed it doing it. Crushed it, yeah. And that, that's probably that's probably about right. So I think that that's a lane. But I think the other thing is I doubt you could execute that strategy by leaning on the legacy technology partners that those institutions historically would have, right? You probably really need to take a leap of faith into surrounding yourself with some very modern, very nimble, probably suppliers to enable to enable this more lightly, right? I think you're right. I, I couldn't. I agree with you 100 percent in that. It, 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 it'd be very difficult on legacy technology to do it, and you have to find your you have to find your point of entry. This is different. You can't be all be all things to all people in this 
kind of digital charter business. You, you, you have to pick, pick your points of interaction and interchange um, and what kind of, and it's really hard because it's really easy to raise deposits and then you got to balance that with, with, with assets. And, and it's a tough balance to really digital loan programs are a lot harder because most of the di- digital origination are un, un, it, it, it is unsecured consumer, you know, like banks don't want that. It's, you know, the real, it's a, it's a real interesting. Now we're starting to see some programs really start to expand in the commercial side. Um, and as you know, we have some companies that do really well in kind of the LOS commercial digital space. So we're, we're starting to see that market start to coalesce, start to open up. Um, and I think you're just going to see an incredible transition uh, of what kind of loans are going to be available. And, and we don't know where that's going to end up. Is it going to end up on loan marketplaces that you, you then go get sleeves of them for your bank? Or are you going to natively create them and, and you become the marketplace because you've, you've forged a niche and you can't handle it all? I mean, it, it's going to be interesting. Yeah, no, I think you raise a really interesting point because another way to to say it, I think, is you know that it's I mean it's no secret that the core business of every financial institution is taking really cheap deposits in and getting a spread on secured, effectively near zero risk lending. Right, that's what the bread and butter of a bank has. And in the reality, through this wave of kind of fintech evolution, you know, the kind of post-financial crash this fintech, you've seen a bunch of deposit-taking institutions in the neobank space. And then you've seen a bunch of like sub, you know, subprime, ultra subprime or unsecured lenders. And, you know, and, and they're often not the same institution, right? So you're getting almost none of the, you're not actually getting into the honeypot. Well, but the honeypot, what, what, what's most fascinating, because we, we do have some investments in these loan platforms that you would say are subprime, non-secured, off-market with average FICOs of like 780. It's unreal. The consumers, especially in the BNPL space, buy now, pay later, you look at these, these are the most credit worthy (laughs) banking customers that are off the banking rails. And it's like, it's not all subprime. Like some of it is just coveted loans. And, And it's fascinating to see the rates they're paying off market just because the experience is easy. It's frictionless you know, you see it in, in all kinds of different little, you see it in the merchant cash advance space where really, really quality small business cons- customers are getting money fast, quick, and easy off rails at, at ridiculous rates. And it's like, we just need to take that same underwriting and credit experience, digitize it, hang it on a bank, and people would be would love to hit the go button. Totally. Because if it's, you know, if it's, if it's good enough to pay pay the mega bips on, then it doesn't doesn't have it only has to be half as good to pay exactly. a, a reasonable spread. Yeah, I I saw a business that I actually think they're going to crush it on a lot of fronts. They just just met and they're just trying to do that MCA thing, but on normal B two B receivables. And it's I mean on the surface you might say it's no speed rates, but I think there's going to be finance departments that are going to hit the button because it's just a button. You just hit the button. Back to your receivables. It doesn't really matter what it costs. They're hitting the button on MCA all day long. And the rates, are I can't even mention them. And if you think of the pendulum, they're going to hit this button. And then the banks can get them to hit this button. 
and it'll still be, you know, two to 300 bips better than what the bank's getting in-house if it's a competitive situation. So let's maybe unpack that because I, I think that the MCA thing is part of... Well, let, let's let's go back and define it for, for those listening. So, so if you think of what he's talking about is merchant cash advance. So at the end of the day, if I'm a dry cleaner and I sit here and use... Uh, take credit cards all day long. I'm on an ISO and that's my representative. And I sign up for the people that handle all my credit card transactions and they put the money back in my account. And then they come to me and they say, hey, you know, we you've been a customer of ours for three to five years. This is your rate. You know, we would love to cash advance you because we know July and August are slow months for you. And so we're going to advance you $30,000 or 40,000 bucks and you're going to pay it back for us through the credit card processing. And that's what, just so we know, it's a, it's basically a loan off of your transactions. And why I think it's important is going back to this idea of we talked about like, you know, the neo lenders were forced to unsecured. And I mean, this isn't really unsecured because, you you know, if you're the merchant processor, you have first lien against all that person's cash flow anyway. So it's highly secured. But on top of that, the underwriting risk you're taking is so like could be so minuscule because you know everything about the cash profile of that business for some period of time. It's just a, a, a quality of underwriting data that has never existed in a traditional financial institution in my mind. Yes, 100%. It's a great business. And so what's interesting is I don't know how banks get themselves into that, right? If you think of that commercial lending franchise as being a real powerhouse part of a bank's income statement, I, I it's It'd be interesting to see how everyone tries to migrate and 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 have this right because if you're if you didn't if you didn't solve that job to be done on offering really nice merchant experience and let Stripe or Square do it, it's really hard to weasel your way in and and get you know get get this prize or even with the way some of those businesses are going, you might you know that might just be the logical place to have your treasury management account. Ban- banks generally still have the deposit account, the primary deposit account. I mean, think about our portfolio company numerated. I mean, they read those transactions. That was their genesis is, you know, they were fintechs, they were data scientists, they were inside of a bank reading all of the DDA, all of the transaction volume of small businesses. And they they went back to bank management and they said, hey guys, we can offer 50 to $100,000 loans to these small businesses all day long, make it a two-click experience because we're reading all their cash flow. And we know for a fact that they have loans with third-party alt lenders and MCAs. That, that and you can knock out. That you can knock out. And you'll do it at 9% versus 38%. And that's still 5% bigger. And by the way, it's unprofitable for the bank to loan, to go out with your credit underwriters and your bankers to do a $50,000 loan. But think about if you can digitize that. <laughs> and and, you know, the cool thing about Dan, the founder of Numerated, is he was a Capital One guy. And this is what they did. You know, they did a lot of testing at Capital One. And you, you think about kind of what Capital One did to the credit card industry. They branded it and uh, they found a bunch of consumers. It's kind of what Dan was doing in the small business. And he's parlayed that into one of the largest, you know, hottest native digital commercial LOS companies out there just on that brand problem. So it is possible. You're right. You have to, but you have to have intelligent platforms to read the data. 
Otherwise, you're shooting in the dark and you can't afford to have bankers do it. It's too expensive. Totally. It has to be automated, but that's going to be an interesting shift, right? Because that it it's and there seems to be everyone circling around that space, right? To be a liquidity provider, a capital provider to these <coughs> recurring revenue businesses. And um, I think it's going to be imperative for banks to figure that out. Um, so on that note, we kind of got we hinted around this a little bit with the civis stuff, but uh, so you do run a bank. What what have your learnings been through uh, that experience so far? Well, it's fascinating. I've, I've really enjoyed it. Um, you know, it's it's civis bank. We're rebranding. Um, we're rebranding the entire bank. It's already rebranded at the holding corp to be called thread, kind of the thread to embed and thread all of it as you, you know, thread, threading the systems together. I think the first thing I would say in my learnings thus far is understanding the enormity of compliance and regulatory uh, compliance with the bank. And it's, it's, it's really, it's a really interesting lesson because the regulators are in the board meeting with you. I mean, they can come in, you have to brief them, you have to supply Every single business plan from comp to everything, they have a say in it and they have to bless it. And you got to learn that very, very early. And, you know, it's very easy for me because I grew up in technology where transparency is a must. Like, you you, you know, with technology, you know, think about what you do. And what I've always done is build compliant systems that are integrated into the banking subsector, which means you're utterly compliant. You're, you're always auditable. Um, so that's been an easy transition. So once you, once you understand that and and you have the regulators in the room, they're really smart and they're actively engaged with FinTech. You know, everybody thinks, you know, where are the regulators on this? They, they, they get it and they understand they're looking at all this. So they're very attracted to what we're building because we're, we're, we're transparent, we're open, we're honest. Um, this is what I've learned. The KYC, the KYB, the AML, the compliance infrastructure needed to really implement and scale platform-based fintech business within a bank can sometimes be 2x what it would be on a natural course of a banking business because the volume is so much greater. So you really have to double down and make your operations, deposit operations, clearing operations, back office, you got to be committed to that. I mean, really committed to that and looking for tools for that. And you have to define that for the fintech. (laughs) Like most fintechs, they can grow up in this. So they're not thinking this way. Like they're getting an app, they're digitally originating clients and they don't, they don't, they don't think about that heavy, heavy compliance need. So, but if you can get early with the platform and really educate them and have them be your partner in that, you can have a winning solution because I can go to a fintech and say, yo, you know, you want us to take 20 million of your deposits. We may reject 20% of those. They're like, nope, you can't reject them. Like, well, yeah, we can because the regulators are looking at this. Oh no, we don't want the regulators looking at it. Well, we can't take the deposits. So like, it's a, it's a really interesting discussion. So, so I would say, just the ability 
to, to, to engage in operational discipline and compliance discipline, A, and then B, just having the right team, man. Like you, you, you got to have people hungry for growth and transition and change. Um, you got to have bankers that believe that this is the future, not fighting you. And, and I think you can have a, a, a really successful infrastructure for growth. No, I think that makes sense. Another, I guess, just kind of maybe a more forward-looking angle here. So you kind of talked about the four pillars of your investment thesis. Um, if and when there becomes a fifth pillar, what do you see that being? And, and what I guess I actually mean by that is what's what's kind of starting to bubble up? Like what's a, a sort of category or a theme of a fintech that you think, you know, is... DeFi, your- I mean, blockchain, blockchain, DeFi, I mean, you, you know, the use of cryptocurrencies, like we have a full fund now. You know, we we, we put it on a separate chassis in our partner fund uh, with Jam, and, and it's a blockchain fund. And it we have so much deal flow right now in and around the category of uh, utilizing the blockchain as a tool, as an instrument, as kind of, you know, people call it the internet of money, but it makes a lot of sense to rip a lot of these legacy ledgers. Like, you know, as you and I both know, sometimes a transaction will go through four or five different sets of legacy ledgers before it settles. And, you know, if you really look at the the brand, I mean, the tech promise of an open ledger, you know, it makes all the sense in the world. Uh, so I think that would be, the biggest new superhighway that's being built right now. And it'll be fascinating to watch how and when each piece of the stack gets put on chain. Because uh, because it's here to stay. I mean, I, it's not going anywhere. And so on that note, I guess if you then kind of put the, you know, our kind of common lens, and I think most people that listen to this probably heavy in this sort of B2B world, you know, treasury, that kind of thing. Well, where does it crop up, right? Like, where does that start to manifest into things you might experience in the office of the CFO or in the, you know, treasury management part of a bank? I, I think you'll see it in two places first. I think you'll see it with anything that has cross-border settlement because <laughs> it's a great and efficient and it actually benefits the corporation because fees, you know, that your cash isn't going to be dragged to death with fees. So I think that's one just absolutely natural blitzkrieg. And I think the second is in payment settlements. Maybe not, maybe the payments you accept, maybe some APAR match. I think you'll see some digital match. Um, It makes all the sense in the world. Um, I think you'll see it, it. It'll settle into your books. It's probably the the two biggest points. I don't think you're going to see massive, chunky payments for a while. I think we're going to stick with where we are. Uh, you're going to see the banks starting to offer and lean into the use of the concept of stablecoin and using, you know, USDF or is, is, a, is a one initiative we're involved with as a USDF consortium. It, it, and there'll be multiple and we'll see what wins. But I think, you know, just finding an instrument that that kind of points to in the banks that that backs to the credit worthiness so you can use digital payment infrastructure. I mean, we're going to see it start to emerge. Um, 
it's amazing to see what's being built out there right now. Yeah, I think that's right. And so the, I mean, do you want me to just explain what they, like USDF or what, like a, you know, kind of a highly, kind of a bank-backed stable coin? So we, we partnered with Figure, which is one of the largest, you know, probably the best funded, most capitalized blockchain company out there. Figure, they have built, they are pro-central bank, with the regulators, they've they've done an exchange with the SEC in partnership with the OCC. So they're really lean. They've 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 raised an insane amount of money. But figure in us and a few others, we we started a consortium called the USDF consortium because we have all these banks that wanted to have a a single platform that they could plug into. And we're not saying there's not going to be multiple of these. We're just saying, hey, here we go. So now. Uh, uh, think about how FINRA coalesced and, and, and how FINRA was built. It was a private public kind of, hey, as an exchange, I can hop into FINRA and be a member. And if I'm a member, there's these set of rules. I mean, I think it's the thing we've done most wrong in crypto. Like there's been no FINRA of crypto. Uh, and it's just nobody can come together on the same standards or the same terms. But that was the nature of true crypto. But if we're going to have a, a stable coin or a U.S. dollar backed crypto, for lack of a better term, so we can drive payments on this, then we got to get something for the banks to join into that's kind of a consortium that they can agree to the the, the terms in use. Uh, uh, does that make sense? And, and I'm probably, you know, bastardizing it a bit and not fully, but from, from my perspective, that's why the banks are joining it, because they want to feel part of something that they can be led to the right answer that they can all agree to. And it's a lot easier for the regulators to join in and opine on something that's got lots of members. No, totally. And I think that's, that makes sense for the initiative. And I mean, just to maybe add my two cents on, on practically how I think this is going to work is, I mean, ultimately the U S dollar is a digital currency right now, right? It's just, it's an abstract concept that we move around, but we have very weird ways of, moving it and and recording it and whatever. And I think that these large bank back USD stablecoins aren't fundamentally different than US dollars. They just are an instrument that could cheaply move in an acid transaction 24 by seven conceivably, as opposed to clearing five by eight hours a day or whatever, like the wire network. At the end of the day, it's new technology. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a faster, more efficient, more transparent, more secure more self-identifiable way to interact with your money. Yeah. And you start to think about high value short-term transactions like overnights and money market things and whatever it, they probably make probably almost inevitable. They'll be cleared in some asset mechanism like this, as opposed to the legacy one, like over the coming decade. Yeah. It's a good topic and it, it, it more to come on it. We could talk about it forever. Um, so Clayton, we're about here up, up on time. Anything else? Um, no, just uh, I, that's perfect. This is kind of everything I had on my notes I wanted to run through. Do you have any parting shots? No, no. I mean, you know, just just love what you do. I think w- when we first saw Fispan, we totally got it. Um, and it's been great, you know, being involved with you guys. It's it's it's, it's fascinating because I always saw going to the bank commercial bank website. You know, you think about what you're doing and embedding the bank experience inside of the office of the CFO and other functionality. I mean, 
it's where we're going. I mean, that that it's a perfect example of where technology is going. And people weren't thinking about it. And then it becomes a must have because like right now, we would we would never think about not using a hotel app to check into our hotel or to book an appointment. Like we didn't think about that 10 years ago. You know, we, we had a, we had travel agents to do that. Well, why wouldn't we engage our banking experience right out of our ERP if we're a bookkeeper, you know? Totally agree. Yeah, it's wild. There's probably people in their 40s now that have never used a travel agent. It just becomes, yeah, it just becomes, becomes normal. Um, awesome. No, I think that's a great point. So, I mean, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Appreciate, uh, appreciate all your guys' support over the years. And, uh, uh, thanks everyone for listening in. And, uh, as always feel free to subscribe on Spotify or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts and uh, stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks.